It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 144, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Maria Smets and Bo Varsano raise an intensive three-quarters of an acre of vegetables at Farragut Farm, located across a lot of water from Petersburg, Alaska. Selling vegetables for eight years in what may well be the most remote and difficult-to-access vegetable farm in the country, Maria and Bo make a living moving their vegetables to market on a boat when the tide is high. We dig into the details of farm management when local amendments are the only real option, and when you get 120 inches of rain a year because you farm in a temperate rainforest. Bo and Mario provide details of the mobile high tunnel system in their high wind environment, dealing with Alaska wildlife, and farming off of the electrical grid. Mario and Bo also share how they maximize produce sales with visits to town on an irregular schedule, and how they are working to address food insecurity in Petersburg, Alaska. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Local Food Marketplace, helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system to order for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact localfoodmarketplace.com to learn more. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. vermontcompost.com. Maria Smets and Bo Varsano, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Hi, Hi, Chris. Thanks for having us. I'd like to start off today by having you guys Give us the lay of the land and, and I guess of the water up there on your farm on Frederick Sound. Yeah, well, it's um, probably an unusual place. It is an unusual place to have a farm, but we are in southeast Alaska, which is a pretty big area uh, that is mostly water access. There's towns there, but there aren't road systems between the towns. So everything, people, freight, everything is moved by water. And I guess probably what's most unusual about our farm is our access issues. <laughs> we think we're probably the most remote and difficult to access commercial farm in the country. And that might not be true, but we can't imagine anyone stupid enough to try and farm <laughs> in a place that has worse access than ours. So that, that's what we base that on. I wasn't going to say it, so I'm glad that you did. <laughs> but it's small. We're only right around a little less than three quarters of an acre. And we're up a tidal slough, which is basically a creek that runs fresh water all the time and then high tide salt water. So the tide comes in and that's that's our access. There are no roads anywhere near us. There's no roads in the bay. There's no roads connecting um, the town that we deliver to to anywhere else. Um, yeah, it's quite remote. How are you guys getting your produce to market from that three quarters of an acre? Where, I guess, where are you going and, and how do you get it there? We take it to Petersburg, which is the closest town. It's about oh, a little less than 30 miles away by boat. And it's a town of about 3,000. That's our primary market. We also air freight some stuff to other towns around Southeast, but 
most of what we sell goes directly to Petersburg. And our access is kind of, it's kind of complicated to describe. We're up, like I said, on a tidal slough, but the tide doesn't come up that slough every day. So with the cycles of the tide, there's bigger cycles and smaller cycles of tides. And there's time periods of up to about a week or so that there is no access to our farm. So we have to time everything with the higher high tide cycles. And it's a multi-step process of moving the vegetables to a small boat. And then with a small boat at high tide, usually we have about a half an hour window, maybe less, depending on the size of the tide where we can move stuff up and down that top, that slough. And we take it down the slough to a bigger boat, and then the bigger boat takes it to town. And then it's pretty normal after that, we load it onto it. We've got a little box truck and we sell at a market in Petersburg. There's a small farmer's market that actually is really just us as far as vegetables. So that that's our primary marketing source. We also sell right in the bay to small tour boats, like um, charter boats that, that take people around Southeast Alaska because it's a really scenic area. Th they, oh. will, they will come in and pick the vegetables up right there. So we're selling every week, once a week, either to charter boats or delivering to Petersburg. And just to clarify, they're quite small charter boats. They're just taking six to maybe 15 passenger not like the huge cruise ships that you might think of coming up to Alaska. Because those huge cruise ships aren't going to, they're not going to fit where you guys are, right? Realistically, they need deeper water. Our bay would be a very scary prospect for a giant uh, cruise ship because we have miles and miles of mud flats for them to get stuck on. So they wouldn't want to want to come near us. One of the obvious questions that I think of when you talk about a three quarter of an acre farm in Southeast Alaska in a place where there's no roads and a place where you can't have a regular delivery schedule because the tides don't follow a strict 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week cycle. Is is this working financially? I mean, I just want to kind of start there. Or is this is this just like something weird that's happening in Southeast Alaska and that makes it kind of cool? Or is it actually something where you guys are making the living that you want to make at it? Yeah, we are making the living that we want to make at it. Um, I think it has a lot to do with that we also live a homesteading life. So we provide a lot of our own needs for ourselves. You know, we're creating our own energy. We're obviously growing all our own food. Uh, we heat with wood that we cut in our bay. So we don't have a lot of the expenses maybe that you'd have if you were living in a, a town down in the lower 48 or even rurally. This last year, I just finished our numbers and we grossed for our three quarters of an acre, we grossed just over 60000 61000 And our costs are fairly low that that's enough for us to get by. Uh, we don't have any kids. It's just the two of us. And it's it's plenty of a living for us. We, we live what we consider to be a very rich life and have all that we need. And um, yeah, it works for sure. And then I guess the other question is, is why? I mean, Bo, you said, you said, it was kind of stupid to to do what you guys are doing, but but why? I mean, how did how did Farragut Farm come about, and and why not just go and and get yourself a piece of land that's actually a little bit easier to work with? Well, it's 
We always hear people on your podcast who are, are super intentional about how they started their farming careers and they knew exactly what they wanted to do and pursued it with a really focused and step by step. And, you know, they knew what they wanted and that's what they were going for. That didn't that didn't happen for us. <laughs> Basically, uh, we both had jobs that while they worked for us pretty well, they they took us away from home there. You can't get a job in Farragut Bay. Uh, <laughs> there's no one hiring. Uh, Other than Farragut Farm. <laughs> there's no one hiring because there's no one there, right? There's one other couple that lives there year-round. Otherwise, we're the only residents. There's there's some recreational cabins there, but the, those two couples, us and the other couple, are the only residents, you know, you, what you would consider resident of Farragut Bay. So, yeah, we couldn't get work there. I worked as a commercial fisherman, which... You know, you, you're gone for blocks of time. And Maria was working in kind of in the tourist industry on as a kayak guide and on small charter boats. But both of those careers brought us away from home a lot. And, you know, we wouldn't see each other as much. And mostly we like staying home. It's a really beautiful place. We really like the homestead lifestyle and are very happy to spend our full time in this one bay doing what we do to survive. And it was Maria's idea, I'm gonna blame her. I get all the blame, yeah. <laughs> to try growing vegetables. And we'd always had a big garden and we always brought our excess produce to town and gave it away to friends. So we just basically just expanded our garden and went from there and it evolved in a very scattered, you know, haphazard way into what now is kind of a pretty efficient, I mean, our layout's a little not ideal because of the way we developed, you know, we just sort of got whatever greenhouse we could find until we figured out that maybe they should all match and <laughs> all our plots should be laid out the same way. And we're slowly bringing it around into what would be more like a, an efficient model for a small farm our size. Tell me about how your farm is set up because when I think about climates conducive to farming, well, I mean, Southeast Alaska is like, I mean, it, you guys have rain there. I mean, that makes Seattle and, and Bellingham, Washington look like dry places. How do you guys make that work in that extreme Northern climate that's so darn wet? Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely right. You know, people say that Seattle's rainy, but I think they get something like an average of 30, correct me if I'm wrong, around the 30s inches of rain a year, and we get around 120 inches of rain. So it's it's a, it's a temperate rainforest up here. It is raining all the time, every season. It doesn't matter. Oftentimes, our summer weather is 50, 55 degrees and raining. That's very typical. So we do have to deal with excess moisture. And um, we've, we've gone about tackling that challenge in a number of different ways. I mean, to begin with, we first sited all our plots just on the highest pieces of our land um, to try to seek the best drainage without having to do, you know, we didn't have a big tractor to move earth around and make serious drainage canals. So we just tried to work with what we had. And we learned pretty quickly on that growing undercover is super helpful here. Like Bo said in the beginning, we picked up a couple high tunnels used and then figured out 
the NRCS program and since then have applied for three NRCS tunnels. Um, and altogether now with one of the greenhouses we had before we started farming, we've got seven high tunnels. Actually about 25% of our land at any given time is undercover. Um, a lot of those high tunnels are movable. So there's the capacity to have more of our land undercover, but just at any given moment, about 25% is covered. And, and that's been huge for us as far as quality and season extension. Our crops definitely get rained out here. Um, so we need to do what we can to get an umbrella over them as much as possible. I'd say also just crop selection, figuring out which varieties can tolerate that much moisture um, and the cool temperatures. We obviously aren't growing eggplants or peppers, um, even tomatoes commercially. We do for ourselves, but any of those heat loving crops, we just can't pull off in an efficient matter up here. So we sticked with cool weather loving crops, but that still gives us good variety. We grow 30 to 40 different varieties of crops altogether. Yeah, I guess we've developed a, or been forced into a certain method, some of that, you know, that we've come up with and some of it just from reading all the good books and talking to people. But we, we do a pretty standard 30 inch raised bed and, you know, very little mechanical tools. We we have an electric tiller. We, we pretty much don't have anything that runs on gasoline besides our outboard motors to move, you know, the boats around. But we can't really cultivate, like cultivating for weeds doesn't really work for us. So that, that has been a challenge, figuring out a different methods of weed su suppression without being able to cultivate. Why can't you cultivate? Well, if it turns out if you, you leave a weed on the ground in Southeast Alaska, it doesn't really care that you've pulled it out and its roots are in the air. It just keeps growing. It so will reroot. It will find a way to reroot instantly. Pretty much instantly. Uh, if you cultivate, you suppress the weeds for about 48 hours and then they're right back where they were. So we have to actually either suppress them with some kind of mulch or, you know, covering. Uh, we have a bunch of tarps that we use. They're not silage tarps, but they're, um, what do you call that stuff? It's Taipar, right? Yeah, it's like a road-based woven material. It's water permeable. So we use a, a lot of that um, between crops to keep the weeds down. And we do a lot of hand weeding, more than we want to, but there, really we haven't found another solution as far as removing weeds that are already there in a crop that we can't just cover with something else. And you can't, you can't even hand weed and pull them out and leave them on the ground. They have to be removed and we compost them or something. But if you don't remove them from the bed, they reroute immediately. So we can't predictably till in any season. Generally, May is a little bit drier, and sometimes we can get get in there in the spring and, and rototill or, or cultivate or prepare the soil in, in that way, but not predictably at all. And we really are forced to pretty much take advantage of any dry spell to run around and till whatever is tillable and needs it. And otherwise, we just do completely a no-till you know, we're, we're surface tilling to prepare beds, but our deep, our deep uh, soil working is all done with broad forks and, and stuff like that. And you guys just broad fork in the wet soils then? 
to loosen things up. And that doesn't damage things too much? Not at all. It, it actually works quite well. Yeah, you can broad fork in the pouring rain here, and it, it mm -hmm. really doesn't. You know, if you're careful, we definitely don't. I know some people like just stand on their beds when they're broad forking. We don't because we would get compaction just from the weight. Human traffic. Yeah, human <laughs> traffic. It's muddy enough that that is always pretty much a problem. Now, you guys have a pretty heavy clay soil there, right? That I think that's kind of typical of Southeast Alaska, right? Actually, soil is pretty unusual in Southeast Alaska. <laughs> in general, there's, there's not a history of agriculture in this part of Alaska. Up north um, in the Matanuska Valley around Palmer, there definitely has been agriculture for a long time. But here in Southeast, it's really a rocky island, uh, kind of new geologic area where any soils are very thin, they're covered with forests. Um, having any sort of soil is, is pretty unique here. So we are lucky in that where our farm is located is in a, a river delta of the Farragut River. So um, we actually do have um, existing soil to work with, but we do do a lot of amending with local um, ingredients, seaweed, beach grasses, fish, crab, you know, different seafood waste um, to work on lightening and amending that soil. Our soils are clay-based, and like Mario said, soil is atypical here, but um, it is, it is, we do have actually pretty excellent soil, like even just testing it in its raw state without anything ever have been being done to it. I mean, the, the ground that we're cultivating it's never even had the grass mowed off it. It was homesteaded originally, but it is new land. You know, it's hard to even encounter something quite like that, I think, in the lower 48, because there never has been anything done to it before. And just in its natural state, it's kind of a, a meadow with pretty intense, thick, lush growth. And it's been like that for at least hundreds of years it's cycling from tide flats into meadows so there has been quite a bit of organic matter built up in it and we when we have tested it just as raw soil it's pretty darn good it's got a lot of clay but otherwise you can really work with it quite easily like we can pretty much just stir it up and grow in it for a couple of years without having to do anything for fertility then i mean you mentioned these products that you're using, or I say products, but they're not really products, are they? <laughs> products of the sea. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, not products that we buy commercially. We don't really buy, you know, bags of different amendments uh, or bags of compost. Um, I mean, part, part of that is just the logistics of moving things to and from our farm is complicated enough. And if we're going to be bringing in, buying in large amounts of amendments, uh, that just creates another piece of the puzzle. But mostly it has to do with just our interest in keeping keeping our farm local and, and keeping all of our amendments local. And we feel like we're very fortunate to live right by the sea and, and the sea is very productive and almost everything the soil needs actually is produced in different forms by the sea. So we just have had a big interest in learning about that and understanding more about what's available and how we can use it to feed our soil better. 
And that's actually something we've been working on with soil testing in an amendment testing, figuring out, you know, uh, what are what the character is of our local seaweed um, and trying to disperse that information eventually to growers around our region, because there's a lot of people who historically have used seaweed in their gardens or other sea-based products, but nobody really knows what's in there and what's it doing to their soil. So we we are working towards getting a more concrete knowledge of what what the makeup is and what it's doing to our soil as we every year get to get tests done and analyze how things are changing. So it's not just a matter of grabbing some of whatever's available. It's going out and making intentional choices about, well, we need this nutrient, so let's add more seaweed. We need that nutrient, so let's get some shell sand or some fish waste. Yeah, definitely. You know, we've it's it's taken some research to figure out, you know, when we see that our soils are lacking in phosphorus, well, what around here do we have that's high in phosphorus that we could use, you know, on a commercial level? Um, so it's been fun. It's kind of been a, a treasure hunt to figure out well, what, what do we have? What can we use to, to fill those needs that our soil is showing? I would say that that's what we're working towards. It, up until probably just three or four years ago, we, we pretty much were like, yeah, this seaweed looks great. It's got lots of dead crabs in it, and it's got some grass. It's got some sand fleas. It's got seaweed. It must be good. Let's just put a ton on there. Um, and we have run into a few problems doing that. So we are getting a lot more selective and scientific and really, well, scientific might be a stretch, <laughs> but <laughs> just trying to get a better handle on it so we can do a more accurate, efficient, and appropriate use of the amendments that are just right outside our door, basically. So things like the seaweed and the fish waste, are you just putting those right on the growing beds or are these going through a composting process first? It's a little of both. We um, we more and more we we're composting everything before we put it on. Um, the ironically, you think of seaweed as just being something that comes directly out of the ocean, but basically what we're getting is what blows up onto the beach in big windrows. So it's all it's there. It's basically all dead stuff. It's stuff that's been washed up in storms and is no longer attached and in the sea. And it's a mixture of all kinds of things. It's not just seaweed. For years and years, we, we would put that seaweed directly onto the garden, oh, right. but yeah. we noticed that we were getting, introducing a lot of weed pressure yeah. because there was, you know, weed seed that had floated in with the seaweed and gotten mixed in along with other sticks or maybe some rocks and other things that we don't want to continue to import into our <laughs> nice beds that we're trying to keep clean of those things. So by composting all of that before we put it onto the beds, we're able to kill those weed seeds and not continue to introduce more weed pressure, even though all we're trying to do is amend it with the seaweed. That being said, though, we do, if we get nice clean seaweed, that's mostly just seaweed, uh, we do put it directly on the beds, especially this time of year in the fall, to carry the beds through the winter with coverage on them. We pretty much cover everything to carry it through the winter in some form or another, like either it has a high tunnel over it 
or it'll have seaweed covering it, or it'll have, you know, our, our tarps over it, or we do a lot of cover cropping too, and just let that run through the winter. But we're covering everything to carry it through the winter, just because we get so much rain through the winter, we would have, you know, things just leach. Anything that's not attached to the exchange capacity is going to leach through the soil and be gone by spring. So we really have to take really good care of our soil through the winter. Yeah, otherwise just major nutrient loss. There's just so much rain flushes right out. Are you guys using cover crops in your climate as well? Yeah, we, we've kind of, we're on this schedule now where anything all our beds are, are, are usually getting cropped at least twice. Um, some things only once, but oftentimes it's two or three or sometimes even four times. And at the end of their cropping cycle, if they're done before a certain date, we cover crop them. And what we're looking for is a, a really advanced stage of growth that will carry the bed through the winter with quite a bit of coverage that winter kills and is still there in the spring and we get like a pretty nice thick mulch layer if it all is if everything's worked out right and we transplant directly into that if it's a a bed to be transplanted or we pull it off into the walkways um, and you know, surface till the beds and direct seed into those. So basically any bed that's done with its cropping um, by about August 15th, we're cover cropping. Usually with um, my favorite thing, we still experiment with a bunch of other things, but my favorite thing has just been good old oats and vetch or oats and winter peas. And we're trying to get those to the stage where they're the the oats are actually pretty you know, have a pretty substantial carbony stock that winter kills and makes that nice, durable mulch for the next season. Right. Because if you seed it too late, you end up with just, I mean, it's basically like lawn grass almost. It's just, there's just no substance to it. Yeah. In our climate, it will just break down and be gone by February or March or even sooner. There'll be nothing left if it's, if it hasn't created that Carbon, carbonaceous, what would be the word for that? <laughs> carbonaceous. <laughs> that thick stem. Yeah. When you say it would break down by February, I mean, I think you guys, I mean, I think Alaska, I'm, I'm thinking 57 degrees of latitude. I'm going like, it must be snowy and really cold up there in the wintertime. But you talk about things breaking down. Maybe you guys are dealing with some different climate realities than what I'm thinking you are. Yeah, I think oftentimes, I mean, you think of Alaska, you think of, no sunlight through the winter, lots and lots of snow. Um, But that's generally more the interior part of the state. The state is huge. It it covers lots and lots of different um, eco climates. And where we are, it's very coastal. um, So we don't get the feet and feet of snow. um, And we actually do have some sunlight through the wintertime, generally in the, the darkest part of the year, 
the sun rises about nine or 10 in the morning, and then it goes down about two or three in the afternoon. So we're not completely in the dark. And some winters, we really don't get much snow. Some winters we do, we'll get a foot or two, or it'll come and go throughout the winter time. Um, but sometimes it's just rainy and 32 degrees. Sometimes it warms up into the 40s. Because it's so coastal, that maritime influence is really strong. And so we don't get the deep snow, the dark winters that you might think of with interior Alaska. If you look on a map, Southeast Alaska is basically coastal Canada. We should be part of Canada, but somehow the U.S. got it. <laughs> so it's, it's very, very coastal maritime climate. So to pivot back to your actual production system, then the beds where you're sowing these cover crops, of course, the beds where you're sowing the crops, I'm assuming are are raised beds. But when I say raised beds, sometimes that means something different than um, than what you guys might be doing. Is Are you guys raising your beds the same way that, say, JM40A might be doing? Or are you doing something that's more extreme with with some more structure to the sides? Well, it's kind of evolved over the years. I mean, we started from a home garden, so we actually started with wooden-sided raised beds that were our garden, uh, and those are taller. You know, they might be 14 inches deep or something. But it, we have evolved into something that really is very much like what JM Fortier is doing, where it's just an 8-inch raised bed with like a, we do 14 inch walkways. They're pretty narrow, maybe narrower than he does. I don't remember. But anyway, our raised, the raised portion of the bed is only eight inches deep. And it is a struggle uh, to keep things from getting saturated and waterlogged to the point where, you know, all your microbial activity stops and there's no nitrogen being created and nutrients are just leaching. And it it's, uh, I don't know what to say. It's a struggle. And there's times when our farm just comes to a grinding halt in the middle of the growing season and nothing is doing anything besides getting more and more beaten by rain and <laughs> slugs are coming out everywhere and mold is growing on all the cucumbers and we're just tearing our hair out. But as soon as we get any kind of sunny weather, because we have really long sunny days, things are really long um, days where the sun, whether it's out or not, is, you know, there's light for in the middle of the summer for, you know, 18 hours a day or something. We can get really rapid growth and our production just picks up in those time periods. We should explain that in the summertime, it gets light around three in the morning and gets dark around 11 at night. And even when it's dark, it's not really dark. It's kind of just a twilight, a twilight time. So that's what he means by 18 hours of sunlight. Yeah. So I, I don't know what to say besides it is a problem and it's it's part of what makes it challenging. And more and more, you know, with our rolling high tunnels, we use them as umbrellas as much as anything and the crops that really need that kind of coverage we'll keep a tunnel over kale for a long time we gave up growing broccoli because it can't take the amount of moisture I mean, you could grow it for yourself but commercially it just doesn't work out so it's been a combination of finding like maria said before varieties that work specific crops that work making our drainage as good as it possibly can be 
working on having lots of nutrition so that you have, even when things are getting leached out, there's more coming from organic matter breaking down, lots of compost. Um, yeah. Also working on rotations, you know, like we, we, we choose to cover our garlic over the winter time with our high tunnels. And then we set the rotation up within the track so that it gets rolled off of the garlic around February, March and onto an early season plot for radishes and early kales and other spring crops. Um, but then that it's planned to be rolled back over the garlic for the last month of the garlics uh, growing because we need that to dry it out so that it can get where it needs to be. If we left it out, we, we have problems growing garlic outside in the summertime because it just it gets too moldy. So just thinking ahead and planning our rotations so that the high tunnel is where it needs to be at the right time of year for that crop has helped a lot. Which I guess when when you say planning those rotations and and talking about the the challenges that you've run into, how long have you guys been at this commercial vegetable growing enterprise? Um, how long have we been at it or how long does it feel like we've been at it? <laughs> Like Bo said, we had a big home garden before we kind of decided to quit our day jobs and try to make a living off of farming. And so it was a slow transition in around 2010 was the first year that rather than giving away vegetables, we started to sell them. That's the year that the market got started in the little town of Petersburg. And so we were really small scale for the, those first oh, two, three years, uh, growing a little bit each year, but I would say we probably didn't really amp up our game until about 2014-ish, more or less. So we're still very new to it and definitely learning tons every year. And, you know, that's that's part of why we're doing it. We both love the challenge and um, trying to find ways to make this work on our crazy little piece of land um, that's not really geared for it has been challenging and interesting and fun and provided lots of opportunities for us to just learn about so many different things, whether it's soil biology, chemistry, uh, business skills. You know, neither of us had ever run a business on our own either. We are still infants in the farming world, but we definitely feel like we've learned a lot in the last, I guess, altogether. Be This was our eighth season if you count 2010 as our first year selling. The high tunnels seem like a really important part of your operation. Are all of those the mobile rolling high tunnels that you were just describing using in your garlic rotation? Not all of them, but I think we have, we have four. Four rollers. Four rolling high tunnels mm -hmm. and then three other greenhouses that don't move. We use the ones that don't move for some pretty specific things. Pretty much most things are grown in the, the rolling ones. Yeah, our stationary tunnels are, are used for either, you know, there are starts house. One of them has a wood stove in it. So that's what we use for uh, growing all our starts. And then another one we have raised, like waist high raised beds that we've created. Um, and we do all our mixed baby greens production in there. Um, so it's easier to work on and... Uh, out of the rain. Out of the rain. <laughs> yeah. The rolling high tunnels, are those something that you bought off the shelf or is that something that you've modified tunnels that you bought that were designed to be stationary? A little of both. The, the first couple that we made, um, 
we modified to roll. And then we started buying, when we, we started buy, getting NRCS tunnels, we bought them, you know, with already set up to roll. We have done a lot of work figuring out how to make them more efficient with our low person power, you know, to make them easy to move. And um, that's something that we've really, I think, done some interesting things with just, you know, just details, but but configurational details that make them easier to use and easier to roll, which is pretty crucial for us because we're we're at the point where we're rolling them off and onto crops just to cover them through rain events or to roll them off something that might need to be watered. So we don't hesitate to roll a high tunnel. Like me and Maria can move any one of our rolling high tunnels in a matter of like 10 or 15 minutes and re-anchor it and have it all, you know, from one position to another in, in 10 or 15 minutes. So, yeah, that's been a big, interesting project, just figuring out ways to have them automatically vent and easy to roll and roll. Like when we're rolling over the garlic here, we grow porcelains, which get to be six feet tall when we're rolling over them in the period of time where we want them covered before harvest. So we figured out ways to, you know, have the, the bays and on the ends open real high to roll over tall crops. And I could talk about high tunnels, rolling high tunnels for quite a while, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's, let's do talk about those a little bit because you're in a very windy climate and, and you guys do have a really limited labor force. It's not like you can just call up the neighbors and say, you know, let's get six people over here to, to push this high tunnel. So you said that you've done some things to make them easier to roll. Like what sorts of modifications have you done to make that work? So we have all rim alls as, as far as the ones that we bought as rollers already. And they have a wheel that is designed to roll on a pipe. And usually people just lay the pipe on the ground which doesn't really work in, in our situation because our ground, while it's pretty flat, it's not perfectly level and we really don't have the means to level it to the point where you would be able to easily roll a high tunnel on a piece of pipe that's laid on the ground. So we take a lot of time to make a foundation basically for the, the track. And it's pretty simple. You just drive pipe into the ground that's in a perfectly straight line as posts for the, the, the wheel track to sit on. So you let make drive those in so they're level and in a straight line and then you, you bolt the track to those so you have a, a fixed track that doesn't move at all and that's perfectly level and perfectly straight or you know as perfect as farmers <laughs> make anything. And it turns out that makes it quite a bit easier to roll. If you don't have any dips and you're not flexing the tunnel, trying to get it to go over little bends and rises, and you know, it, it really makes it much easier to roll. That pretty much takes care of that part. Um, and then for the end walls, we make like a rolling, a roll up, basically roll up end walls that can roll up about six feet tall. It's pretty simple to do. It's really fast. We have some with hinged doors, which is more standard. 
and they're really a pain <laughs> and they don't fold up very high and it really it for us it does not work very well this roll-up system is really quick gets really high you can use it for for ventilation really well um we're, we put ridge vents in all of our tunnels that are controlled by those the wax cylinders so they automatically open and close as need be that's helped a lot with ventilation we also put access doors we have an access door on the side wall not the end wall of our tunnels that slide and that has been really good too when you don't when you in the winter time or you know the shoulder seasons when you want to keep the tunnel closed up you don't want to open this giant and roll up end wall, you can access the tunnel through these sidewall sliding doors. And we have one at each end, which makes it really easy for us to take, uh, we cover inside the high tunnels, we cover everything with big sheets of row cover. We don't cover each bed with an individual piece of row cover. The whole tunnel gets covered with one big piece. So we can walk in there, one person can be on one end, of the row cover and the other person can be on the other you walk just down the the end wall sides of the greenhouse grab the row cover and pull the whole thing over if you need frost protection or whatever to work on it and then you walk right out those side wall sliding doors just a really easy way to an efficient way to access it and you must have a pretty quick and easy way to anchor and unanchor the houses too if you're moving them that often and if it's only taking you 15 minutes or a half an hour to get that job done i would say 10 literally 10 minutes yeah. 15 to 10 minutes it's really quick definitely not a half an hour yeah 10 minutes from on from popping the anchors you know the whole process undoing the anchors rolling it redoing it it's really 10 minutes but you should about they're they're it's pretty simple i mean it's nothing too complicated but we we make earth augers and we put permanently mounted earth augers about every 20 feet. That seems to be, after having high tunnels blow off the tracks a couple of times, um, because we didn't have enough of these anchors in, every 20 feet seems to do it. Um, and we get really, really strong winds. We can get, you know, it's quite common to get 50, 60, 70, 80 in the wintertime, we've had up to 90 mile an hour winds and it, it seems to hold them just fine. If you have a, a, one of these earth augers, we, we go about four feet deep. It would depend on your soil, how deep you would need to drive them. But they're every 20 feet throughout the whole track system. So we're never moving anchors or anything. And we use a 10,000 pound test ratchet straps which you can get pretty cheaply you can buy them in a, any number of places online for about twelve dollars each and those travel with the tunnel so every 20 feet you're undoing one of these ratchet straps which takes seconds and then you just clip it up onto the tunnel so it travels with the tunnel to the next position and then there's an earth auger right there right where it needs to be for the next in the next position for the ratchet strap and you just crank it down again and walk down the length of the tunnel and reinstall those straps. So it goes really quickly. Yeah, it's pretty slick. I love that. I'm remembering my experience with, you know, turnbuckles and aircraft cable 
for anchoring to those earth anchors. And I'm thinking, man, those ratchet straps, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> They're pretty slick. They make things very fast, for sure. So, you know, I mean, you guys are farming, I mean, not even just like on the edge of the wild, but you're you're farming in the wild. Um, <laughs> and I grew up in Seattle. I know how big the slugs get there. But, <laughs> I mean, how are you guys dealing with, the wild creatures, what kind of creatures are you dealing with? And then how do you keep them out of your gardens? Well, we have slugs, but I don't think they're any wilder than slugs anywhere else. <laughs> slugs are slugs across <laughs> slugs are the slugs. world. And they're, they are one of our major pests. Believe it or not, probably the second worst enemy to our farm is the evil robin. <laughs> And we get flocks of them, and I think we have created it. It's like we our farm's a worm factory, and it's the only place around that has bare soil. Everything else is completely covered with vegetation. So it's easy pickings, and we get big flocks of robins that just come in and build nests all over the place and raise their babies, and they just get in there, and they will rip apart any seed bed, pull up all the plants. They pull up our cucumber plants. We lost half of our cucumbers this spring to a bunch of robins that were able to sneak into one of the high tunnels. Dealing with them has been a big challenge. We basically cover anything that is delicate, any seed bed, any transplant that's small is covered with either row cover or bird netting, and it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, but necessary. Yeah, we wish we didn't have to do that, but we have to. So besides that, uh, bigger animals that people think of more when they think of Alaska, maybe. We have moose, which that can be pretty interesting. Sometimes we chase them, sometimes they chase us. Uh, but generally, the moose there are more curious. They haven't really clued into our garden as a food source, and it's a pretty transient population. So they'll come through and they'll be curious and they'll just kind of stomp through everything and eat a few things and cause a lot of damage, but they don't come back like night after night. And if we chase them out and keep them away, it's, it's usually not that big a deal. We do have an electric fence, a very simple electric fence that goes around the entire farm that helps to keep them out. When they want to come in, they just break it down. But I would kind of assume that when you're a moose, you get to go where you want to go. You get to you go where you sure want to go. You sure do. You get to do whatever you want to do. They are not afraid of much. And it's a big area for black bears. We don't really have any of the brown bears or grizzly bears, but we see bears on a daily basis and they walk through the farm. Generally, they don't harm anything and we've come to a truce with them. They don't bother us. We don't bother them. So I wouldn't say they're a problem at all. It's a problem for our interns more than anything. <laughs> They have to walk to a cabin that's probably a five-minute walk away. And depending on the intern and their comfort level with that kind of thing, it's... It could be can, a scary experience. Yeah, they, <laughs> that, there, there could be a certain sphincter factor to that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we haven't lost one yet, though, so... <laughs> no. We give them bear spray and they're okay. So you said interns. Uh just real quick, tell me about that, because we've we've talked about how you don't have a lot of help on the farm, but do you normally have folks living there with you over the summer? 
Well, it, it, for the last three years, we've had interns slash workers, you know, stipends, worker interns. Um, and there, we have a friend in the Bay who, who lived there for a while, a family that lived there for a while and then moved on. And they still have a cabin in the Bay that they're, they're letting us use. So we use that as intern housing. The last three years, we've had interns. Um, and it's a little tricky, like we're in a situation that's probably a little harder for most people to deal with. It's really isolated. There's no social interaction besides me and Maria, which maybe gets a little gets bit a little old, old sometimes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've kind of come up with a solution of keeping the stays with us relatively short. We try and do a month or six weeks. And this last year, we, we rotated with another small farm that's up in Haines, a town about a couple hundred miles away. And we basically flip-flopped interns with them. So that our intern stayed with us for a month. Their intern at the same time was with them. And then they switched places. Yeah, so that's been making it bearable for our interns for a full season. We've kind of given up on that because it's just, it's too much. Everything's too new. There's too many bears, too much isolation. The trips to town are too hard. I think sometimes people have the idea that they would love to live in solitude and get away from it all. But then when reality hits and you're alone and there's no stores to go to and no restaurants and no movies, it's, it's, it's a hard reality for most people. So keeping the stay short has, has yeah, worked we, really well. Then people have fun. And when they're about ready to get tired of it, then they move on and, and try something new. Yeah, we keep it short and sweet. And I have to say, when the boss says things like, make it bearable, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would love to be able to, our, our ideal would be to hire someone, but it's really not practical. I mean, you cannot commute between Petersburg and Farragut Bay and we can't really afford to pay someone what we would have to to make it worth their while to actually live in Farragut Bay and work for us for a season. So, you know, everything's hand labor. So we need help or it's really nice to have help, but we don't really we can't really access a labor pool. So that's that so far has worked pretty well for us, the intern thing. We'll see where it goes in the future. With that, we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we will be right back with Maria Smets and Bo Varsano from Farragut Farm up in Frederick Sound in Southeast Alaska. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I have worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors, with the kind of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows and rotary plows, flail mowers and snow throwers, sickle bar mowers and chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com Support's also provided by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? 
Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvest packing and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help your farm automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system for managing multiple sales channels, customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Contact them via their website at localfoodmarketplace.com to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from Packhouse to your customer's doorstep. All right, and we're back with Maria Smets and Bo Varsano from Farragut Farm up in Alaska. Well, up in Southeast Alaska, so it's not, as you were explaining, not quite like being in Fairbanks, but it's That's definitely right. not quite like being in Washington or Wisconsin either. So somewhere in between. Yeah, people from Fairbanks don't think that Southeast Alaska really is truly Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> We're suburb of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> suburb of Seattle, but a little bit harder to get to than most of the Yeah, Seattle, the commute's so. pretty right. long. <laughs> so I wanted to go back and and dig in a little deeper about how you guys are actually going through the process of getting things to market. We talked about how it was so dependent on the tide. So that must right there have a huge influence on how you guys are managing your harvest schedule and your post-harvest handling. Yeah, definitely. You know, it it all starts around this time of year um, is when the tide schedule gets published for the next year. So around November, December, I start taking a look at those tide tide books and figuring out which days we're actually going to be able to have enough water to float our veggies off the farm and down to our bigger boat and get to town. Um, So I do spend a lot of time working through scheduling, um, getting our cell dates set up in advance, and and from there work back towards setting our planting dates. Um, We sell in town once every other week from early May through mid-September. And again, that's it depends on the tide. Sometimes we have to push it in one direction or the other, um, but we're shooting for about once every other week. And then on the opposite weeks of that, we generally have when our small cruise ships come in and when we're selling right in the bay. So we do generally do one big harvest every week. And the way that looks in the summertime, just kind of the nitty gritty is, is it takes us about two days on average, depending on if it's just us or if we've got help um, to do our harvest, say for a, a Petersburg market. And then we at the high tide, whether that's at two in the afternoon or sometimes two in the morning, we load Uh, We use carts, these big rolling carts that Bo has designed to move all the vegetables that we store in coolers. Uh, We move all those coolers to a a little 16-foot skiff that we have and load it all up onto the skiff. And then we float that skiff out the slough, which is about a half mile. It's a half mile. Half mile. And then from the skiff... We manually load all those coolers onto our sailboat. We have a 26-foot catamaran, and so all the coolers get put in the floats, and we've made a sort of wooden carrying rack system on top. Uh, A bunch get loaded up there. 
everything goes on to the sailboat and then we go to town on that boat and it takes us about four to five hours on that boat to reach Petersburg, depending on the weather and depending on how heavy our load is. And then from there, we're able to uh, load all the coolers into a box truck that we have. And then the box truck goes to market where we set up our stand. But yeah, it's very tidally dependent. Obviously, we're not going to be carrying coolers full of vegetables on our backs out to the water. (laughs) So um, we need to make sure that we've set our dates up ahead of time to work with those, those high, high tides that give us enough water to float out. Yeah, just to add, like there is a tide schedule, but gosh, it's kind of hard to explain, Mm. but we are right above sea level. Like our entire farm is probably an extreme high tide is lapping at the edges of everything. (laughs) The garden beds, our house, everything. We're right above high tide and everything is really flat, including the slough. There's not much gradient. So six inches one way or another of tide of tidal height makes a huge difference and we are forced to ride the edge of what's possible all the time like uh, as far as floating things up and down our slough we have our skiff is has a flat bottom so it doesn't take very much water and we have to take multiple trips in order to our the skiff won't hold enough to to uh just do it all in one trip. But believe it or not, we're looking at the tidal height and then on a day when it's a marginal high tide, we're also looking at the barometric pressure to figure out which tide we're gonna have to use to get it, to get the, to have enough water to get the vegetables out. Because if it's a high, high pressure day, like a sunny day, the tide is going to be significantly smaller and smaller enough that we might not be able to take all these vegetables that we've waited two weeks to harvest and just spend a bunch of time harvesting. It just might not be big enough and it's not possible to carry them out. There's no other way to get them out. So it's, it can be nail biting. Stressful. Yeah. At times when the tide is just barely big enough and you, then you get a high pressure that comes in and it's like, ah, we can actually be able to move all these vegetables. Uh, but most of the time with planning, like Maria said, it's pretty predictable and we may have to get up in the middle of the night or whatever, but we're going to be able to get them out. When you're talking, taking coolers of produce out, how many coolers are you taking to town at a time? Oh, let's see if I can figure that. Of course, we have just a hodgepodge of coolers because as we started small and we were cheap and didn't have a lot of money and we'd buy used coolers off of people of all different sizes and shapes. Um, so we don't have like a standard fleet. I I think maybe the more accurate way to, to, to get an idea of the quantity of, I think you're getting like quantity of produce. Yes. Yeah. We're loading the boat with including cooler weight and everything else, anywhere from, I would say, one to 3,000 pounds of produce and coolers per trip to town. So no small amount of produce. No, we, we, a lot of food. we produce quite a bit of food, yeah. Wow, okay. 
We're we're professional schleppers, Chris. Yeah, we spend a lot of time moving things. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do think there's an argument to be made that farming and market gardening, maybe even more so than a lot of other farming, is all about materials handling. But you guys have really, you've really taken that and leveled it up. Yeah, we uh, we've made it as tricky as possible. That's for <laughs> sure. But we've we're, we've gotten a lot better at it, and we found some more efficient ways to go about it. So it gets easier and easier every year. And in fact. Was in the process of building us a new boat to make it even easier because we have just been using our boat that we've had forever um, and adapted it to to carry these you know three thousand pounds of vegetables. But he's he's creating a newer boat that we won't have to be bending down and awkwardly moving coolers into floats that uh, will be easier on our bodies and we'll be able to carry more produce safely to town. So. We are we are still working on making it a smoother, better process in facing the challenges that we face in Farragut. So now the vast majority of your produce then is going into this town of Petersburg, which is not exactly a metropolis. Yeah, that's right. Petersburg only has about 3,000 people. It's a pretty small town. And like we said earlier, it's not connected to any other towns by a road system. It's on an island, actually. So there's a, a small amount of roads uh, around Petersburg, but there's really nowhere to go in your car in Petersburg. You can't drive to the next town. So, yeah, we, we are faced with some challenges of trying to make our living um, selling to a limited number of people. Um, and we knew that from the beginning. And so took that into consideration as we grew each year. Uh, part of that is keeping a diversity of crops. You know, some days we think, gosh, it would be so much easier if we could just grow five or six crops, those that do the best and, and sell that and make a living. But, um, you know, 3,000 people, obviously not everyone in town is going to buy our produce, but a limited number of people, it's going to be hard to make it by only growing uh, a limited number of crops. So we've worked to keep diversity so that our customers can buy many different things from us, which really helps having bigger sales per customer. Um, and we also have, I, I, I would say we sell, let's see at the numbers, I think we, we sell about three fifths of our income at the market in Petersburg. And then we sell another fifth to the, the tour boats that we talked about. And then another fifth of our income comes from wholesale. So that's to uh, restaurants here in town or the grocery store here in town, uh, the school. We also sell to the school. Um, and, and we have over the years, as, as we've grown, we've started to ship out a little bit of our produce to mainly to a grocery store in Juneau, which is north of us, and a grocery store to Wrangell, another small town south of us. But uh, th that is air shipped. It's it goes on an airplane. Alaska Airlines flies among all the communities here, and so we bring it up to the airport in boxes, and then it gets uh, shipped to either town. But like I said, the majority of it is staying here in Petersburg, and the majority of it is being sold directly to our customers at that market. I mean, so Petersburg, a town of about 3,000 people. I, I was doing some numbers before our interview today and, and calculating, you know, here in Madison, which is like, you know, the hipness center of local foods, uh, at least here in the upper Midwest. And, you yeah. know, we have, 
I, I think you could argue that about 10% of Madison's population is a member of a, of a CSA, right? I mean, and that's, yeah. and of course, though, we've got a population of 250,000 people. So, you know, 10%, that's a, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of vegetables. What percentage of the people in Petersburg are coming and buying your guys' produce? Yeah, you know, I'd actually say it's pretty close to the same. Um, our market manager does keep track of our numbers. And generally, we're getting about three to 400 people who are coming through our market each week. And so in a town of 3,000, that would be about 10%. I mean, our sales, when I look back, I'm I'm doing about 110 to 120 actual sales on average per market. But of course, that represents you know, if you're looking at a family of four, it represents more than just one person. So right. um, I'd say at least 10% of our town shows up regularly to our market and and maybe even more, including kids are, are eating our food at one time or another. We, we have an incredibly supportive community. I think, you know, when you live in a small town, isolated, there's a certain... Uh, we take care of each other. We look out for one another and we support each other. And, and we have seen just tremendous support from the people in Petersburg. Everyone is really excited about what we're doing and really interested to have access to fresh locally grown produce. You know, all the, all the food in the grocery stores is barged up here. Um, so they're used to, Generally speaking, the quality isn't that great because by the time it's been shipped from the lower 48 and made the barge trip up to Petersburg and gets out on the shelf, you know, it's it's been a long time since it was harvested. So they just they feel very fortunate and 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 know and can see the difference between something that was picked yesterday versus something that was picked two weeks ago. So, yeah, we've been just super, super supported by our community. And we're really thankful for that. So tell me about the market where you're selling your produce, because you noted that there's not like a lot of other vegetable farms in your area. Yeah, that's right. There aren't. And at the market, we are the only quote unquote farmer. Occasionally, someone will bring in some extra kale from their garden or something that they've produced on a home scale. But it's a small market. I'd say there's generally uh, 10 to 20 vendors who show up and um, people are selling, you know, uh, baked goods, breads, cookies. Some people make jewelry. It's it's not just a food market. There also is artisan stuff happening. Um, there's always someone there making something for lunch, Thai food or soup and sandwich, something like that. But yeah, we are we are the main attraction as, as far as vegetables go. So, you know, in some ways it's great. We don't have any competition. Everyone who comes to the market looking for vegetables is pretty much going to buy from us. Um, but like you said, in the face of that, we have to do everything we can to get every customer to buy as much as they can in order to, to move the quantity of produce that, that we're growing. Yeah. I'd like, I guess to add to that, um, it's been an interesting challenge that, is a really good challenge to have. I'm not complaining at all, but um, we do get like kind of a crowd. There is so much demand for local produce and we are the only place to get it in any kind of quantity that um, we get swamped to the point where it's been a challenge. Like Mario spent a lot of time and thought designing a market stand layout that allows us to 
move people through as rapidly as possible and still like provide them a way to shop without just standing in lines and being herded like cattle. And it's been interesting and really challenging to make um, an efficient way to serve everyone who wants to be served in the short time, once every two weeks that we're actually available to buy from. Um, yeah, and it's taken a lot of thought. Yeah, our market is actually only three hours long too. We should throw that in. It's not an all-day thing. It's just three hours, so wow. it it all gets it's compressed. Compressed. Yeah. So we've done a lot of, or my, I should say, Mari has done a lot of things, which is, you know, figuring out a rapid way to check people out. You know, we use iPods. iPads. iPads. <laughs> this is why one I those, deal with that section. <laughs> one of those i things. We use one of those i things for cash <laughs> registers. We have two people checking out um and then we also have a, a self-checkout station where people can with another eye thingy <laughs> that people can self-check out and it all you know it's a i don't know what mari should talk about this but it's a computer program that tallies all the sales puts them all one place categorizes it we know exactly what was sold and blah 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 and then we also have like a pre-made bag of vegetables that people can just come in and they don't even have to deal with competing with other people to look at what's there and picking things out. They just grab the bag, throw their money in a box and walk out for people who want just to get veggies quickly. So we've done a lot of things, just the layout of the stand. It's kind of in a star shape. So there's a lot of surface area to it like we've tried to get is things are in multiple places every there's five tables and they're all spread out in a star shape and they each have you know a little bit of everything on there so people have access to everything without having to walk through the whole stand um yeah it's taken a lot of work just to make that efficient but it's been necessary because it, it came to the point where people were waiting for 45 minutes in line to get through, to come through the stand and, and pick something out. And we, we knew we were losing customers because some people would walk in and see a line all the way through the hall and be like, I'm not going to wait in that line just to buy some carrots. So we don't want to lose those customers either. We want to make sure that if you're not someone who wants to sit around and talk with your neighbors while you wait to get your vegetables, that there's options for you to get what you want get in and get out if that's if that's how you prefer to do it now how does your pricing compare to the food that comes out from the lower 48 because my memory of food in alaska from from when i've been up there is that it's it's really expensive yeah yeah food is expensive here people are used to spending a lot more of their budget on food i i would say than in the lower 48 and our prices we try to set our prices pretty comparable to the organic offerings at our local grocery store. Um, maybe a little bit higher in some cases, but usually we're right around that price point. Um, so yeah, we're, you know, we're, our food is not cheap by any means. And that's something that's been in the forefront of our mind as our business has developed that, you know, we obviously need to set a high enough price point that we're making a living. But in doing that, 
um, we definitely exclude some of the members of our community who, who can't afford to buy expensive vegetables. There's a lot of people in our town who just don't buy fresh vegetables because they don't have the expendable income to be able to afford that, whether it's at the grocery store or, say, at the farmer's market. We do do the WIC program, uh, so there's a number of mothers in town who can come in and have vouchers throughout the summer to get produce for their kids. Uh, we also signed up for the SNAP program years ago, but we didn't really get a lot of takers um, through that SNAP program. And I think part of it is just having limited food stamps. Um, you know, they might not be able to spend them again on expensive vegetables. So this last year, in a, in a way to try to deal with that issue, we trialed a new program that we called Healthy Food Equals Healthy Families. And we, we as a farm came to our community and said, hey, you know, we see this as a problem. We want to make, we think everyone should have access to fresh, healthy vegetables. And in an effort to get there, to start this, we as a farm are going to donate to four families this summer, a bag of produce every time we come to town. And if you think that's cool and you want to join in, you know, feel free to donate. The more donations we get, the more bags that we'll give away to low-income families here in our community who might not feel comfortable and might not have the money to come and spend it at the market. And it actually worked out really great. Uh, we got, again, a lot of support from the community who agreed that it was an issue and, and wanted to put their money towards solving that issue. And we were able to collect enough donations to get 11 families sponsored throughout the summer. So um, every time that we came to town, uh, 11 families got to pick up a bag of free produce. And I believe it was 34 kids amongst those families. A lot of, a lot of families with three and four kids ended up signing up. So we reached a lot of kiddos here in the community and a lot of our customers were really excited to be able to contribute to something like that and, and work towards getting everybody a chance to have, you know, the produce that they really enjoy eating as well. So you guys are coming to town once every two weeks, more or less, and you're doing it over a pretty short season, May until the middle of September. How do you guys stay in touch with your customers? How do you make sure that people know when to show up for market? I think it would be pretty easy to just miss it. Yeah, definitely. It, that's super important when you're not, you know, I wish we could be able to be there every Saturday morning because people can remember that and remember to show up for it. But unfortunately, we don't even sell on the same day of the week most of the time. It's changing throughout the summer. So we have to work really hard to get that word out and then to remind people. And we do that a number of ways. Let's see, at the beginning of the season, I always hand out a little piece of paper that's got our schedule on it um, for people to stick up on their refrigerators um, so that they've got that in their face throughout the summertime. We also do hang signs around town near the docks is really important in our fishing town. People are up and down from the docks all the time. So we make sure in the high traffic areas around town, we've got a big poster sign that explains who we are and what we do and when, when we're in town. And we also maintain a really healthy email list and Facebook presence. Our town is definitely into the Facebook thing. Um, so we try to always do reminder posts about the day before we're coming in, the day of, um, as well as sending emails saying, hey, you know, just a reminder, we're coming in tomorrow. This is what we're going to have. This is where you can find us. Uh, and that has really helped 
But I also think just word of mouth is super important in this town. Um, so getting your customers excited enough to talk to their friends and family about you being there is just so valuable. Oh, you know, and we also actually uh, advertise on our local radio station. We've got a great little radio station, KFSK, um, that has local reporting as well as NPR feed. And we're an underwriter, a sponsor for them. And so we get a little spot on the radio, which everyone in town listens to the radio. So that's get the word out as well. So one of the things that you guys commented on early on in the show is that you live a fairly self-reliant lifestyle. I mean, that was pretty obvious from the fact that you're gathering your own fertilizer off of the beach. Uh, (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about the utility setup that you guys have there. I mean, because it takes water to wash crops and you need heat for the greenhouse. And how do you make all of that work when you don't have utility lines coming in from the outside. Yeah, it's definitely, that's another challenge for sure. Living within an energy budget that we, you know, the energy, all the energy we have, it comes from somehow from what we produce in one way or another. Um, I guess we do buy gas for the outboard motors, but that's true. That's true. (laughs) Uh, so we have a, a solar array and a small windmill. And even in Alaska, especially during the summer, that actually produces quite a bit of electricity and a lot of energy. So that covers stuff like pumping water, um, you know, charging batteries for our electric tiller, lights. Our, it powers, we have a satellite internet connection, which is our communication with the outside world for marketing and all that other stuff, everything else. Um, so that's pretty simple. Like you just stick panels in the sun and you have uh, electricity. Um, that covers that. As far as water, we're collecting water off all the roofs that we have and putting it in storage tanks. We have about 10,000 gallons of water storage now. Um, There's a dedicated tank just for washing in a special, in a a separate system. So we keep that especially clean and, and keep that roof really clean and, you know, bleach the tank a couple of times and keep that system really nice and clean. So we're pretty confident that we're not going to get anybody sick. (laughs) And then we have a bunch of other tanks that are used for irrigation inside of high tunnels that aren't, you know, aren't open to the rain. And otherwise we do put an irrigation system on our carrots for germination, but otherwise it's pretty we're not watering outside very much at all there we might get an occasional dry spell where we'll run around with a hose just to keep things going but otherwise there's enough rain that we don't have to worry about that that's one benefit of all that rain yeah (laughs) but we don't you know we're not running very much on on gas besides the outboard mower motors Everything else, all of our tools run on electricity that comes from the solar panels. We have an electric lawnmower that we go around all the edges of all the beds and keep things tidy and kind kind of try and keep the slug habitat down (laughs) a little bit. We have a couple different electric tillers that we use. 
And as far as heating, we only really heat one greenhouse, and that's our starts house. And we have a wood stove in there that heats up a big tank of water as a heat sink. But that's pretty simple, too. It's just a wood-fired stove. One of the things that I think is really cool about farming in Alaska is, you know, everybody else talks about food sovereignty and the importance of local food systems. But, man, in Alaska, like, local food systems and food sovereignty, like, that's a real thing, you know? I mean, there's, it's it's not like you guys have reliable, easy ways to get things from someplace else. And so last year, it's my understanding that you guys hosted the inaugural Southeast Alaska Commercial Growers Conference. Yeah, yeah. It was actually two years ago now. Um, We had the idea that it would be really cool to get together anyone else in our region here who is working on commercial food production and share ideas and challenges and uh, just try to get to know because because we're uh, such a spread out region, we just don't have the opportunity really to, to meet with people who are in other communities or living in other rural places. So we just put the word out as best we could and told people to spread it. And about 30, 35 people showed up here in Petersburg that first um, Southeast Growers Conference. And it was great. It was, it was so fun to see that there actually were some other folks out there, you know, trying to trying their hand at farming. Um, again, like we said, there's not much going on here in our region. We're in the very nascent stages of a local food movement. Um, it's not like down in the lower 48. So uh, it was a great opportunity for people to share experiences. And we actually held our second annual one just this last winter in February up in Haines. And the idea is to kind of move that conference around Every other year, we'll hold it in a different community in Southeast uh, to give people a chance to attend who might not be able to, you know, make the trip. Uh, It's pretty expensive to travel around Southeast by ferry or by plane. Um, But yeah, we want to continue that tradition of of just getting together people to share in in learning, really. There's, There's just not a lot of existing resources about farming here in Southeast specifically in our climate, in our region. And so we feel the best way to learn is to just talk to everyone else and find out what's working for them, what's not working for them, whether that's farming techniques or even marketing, you know, how are you getting your food to communities that are far away? Um, Are you using the barge? Are you shipping by plane? You know, are you doing a CSA? Just just sharing what works and what doesn't as we all uh, try to become more uh, refined in our farming techniques and in our marketing techniques. It's been super helpful and, and just really nice to know that we're not alone out here. Sometimes you, I think that's true with farmers anywhere. And that's why your podcast is such a great thing, Chris. It just, it, it gives you a chance to realize that there's other folks out there who are doing what you do and, and love what you love. And it's, it's nice to hear their stories. Yeah. The first one was 30 people. And the one in Haines was, what was it, 90? People? Yeah, it was 80, 85, 86 people showed up. So it really did grow yeah, over the grew. course of two years. Yeah, the first one was very different from the, the, the second conference. The first conference was really homegrown. And me and Mario just kind of threw it together. And um, we, all the presenters were just local people who put together, you know, local farmers or people who wanted to farm or whatever, who put together little presentations um, it was really intimate and, you know, we cooked a big meals together and 
everybody really got to know each other. And the second one kind of exploded and we had presenters from outside the region and some, a farmer came down from uh, the interior. Um, it was a big event, a big catered event. And it was amazing. I mean, it was, it really felt like a real conference. Um, <laughs> and I think everyone got a lot out of it and it was frenetic, just, all these people who never get to see anybody else's growing <laughs> got together. We already all, you know, knew each other a little bit from the first conference. And it was, we were pretty exhausted after frantically socializing for four days or whatever it was. And the other thing that's kind of interesting that's happening now is a group of us are going to be going down to the Moses conference this spring, we're winter coming. spring. So you're going to see a bunch of really pale, pasty <laughs> <Alaskan> people <farmers. laughs> walking around in a self-conscious group because we don't get to talk to any other farmers. You know, it's Wisconsin and it's farmers. So, you know, we're pasty and, and don't really talk much either. You know. We're pastier than you are. We'll probably. Try to probably. So, all right. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round after we get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round in particular and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast in general is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In addition to being excellent physical products that grow amazing transplants year after year, Vermont Compost potting soils are an embodiment of the best of the art and the science of potting soils. Seriously, would you rather eat bread or drink beer rooted in a place made with a deep tradition and respect? Or would you rather eat bread and drink beer that's the product of the most reductionist of modern science, which gave us sliced white bread in plastic bags and the most unpalatable military industrial beer? And would you rather use potting soils based on that same reduction of science that require the daily infusion of liquid fertilizer? Or would you like to use potting soils based on living compost and the best ingredients designed to bring a rich diversity of biology into your greenhouse planting trays and your soil blocks? I know what I like. And that's why I would encourage you to take advantage of Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program to help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost fall pre-buy program runs through December 21st. VermontCompost.com. Bo, what's your favorite tool on the farm? I don't know if it really classifies as a tool, but my favorite tool or piece of equipment, whatever you want to call it, is our boat, the Oozel. Um, it's a catamaran sailboat, 27 feet long. It's about 12 feet wide and there's a lot of deck space and open hulls where you can fit a lot of coolers. And we, you know, I originally bought it as just a way to get back and forth to town. And it has turned out to be almost ideal for transporting vegetables. I mean, it's not ideal, but it has worked for years. And we, it's carried everything from carrots to sawmills, um, <laughs> and it always gets us home. It's an amazing boat. <laughs> it just sounds so much cooler than having a box truck, you know. Mario, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Um, you know, I'd have to say I'm not a big tool person. I really, I think hands have been amazing, amazingly engineered, and it's hard to make a tool that's better than your hands, but. If I had to choose, I would say probably the carts that Bo has made us, these big flat top carts that have uh, sort of bicycle wheels, um, and we can use them for transporting amendments, uh, sometimes as like 
portable tables for workspaces, for jobs you might need to do. We move all, it makes moving coolers so much easier around the farm and other heavy things. They, they're just awesome. I, I like the flat top carts. And Mario, what's your favorite crop to grow? I would have to go with the lowly cabbage. I, I love cabbages. They're just humble and they're beautiful and they actually like growing here, which many things don't. So uh, I, I would I would pick cabbages as my favorite vegetable to grow here. And Bo, do you have a favorite vegetable to grow? Yeah, garlic, um, partly because, you, you know, we can be almost totally self-contained with it. Once once we got our seed stock up, we can plant back our own seed stock and it's just a really rewarding, durable, It's it stores really well. We can keep it. We don't have to rush it to town and sell it. Bo, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I was thinking about this and it when you think of like metal, you know, this it has so many fatigue cycles before it breaks um our backs are the same way (laughs) and i'm no spring chicken anymore and if i could have told myself when i was 18 to 30 or whatever that uh my the health of my back was finite uh, that would have been really good advice. Just you can only bend over so many times before it really starts to hurt. So do everything smart from the beginning. And uh, if you don't have your physical health, you really don't have much, and especially farming. Maria, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would you say? Well, it hasn't been all that long since we haven't been at it all that long. <laughs> but um, I think I would tell myself to, once I figured out that this is really what we were doing and we were going to try to make this farming thing work, to take some time out to go and check out what other farmers were doing, um, farmers who at least were doing something similar to what we were shooting for. I think, you know, we came into this pretty green with not a lot of agricultural knowledge and we learned a lot of lessons the hard way uh, that maybe could have been prevented by just spending some time on other farms and, and getting some great ideas and learning some lessons from folks who've been doing it for a long time. Maria and Bo, thank you so much for making time today to be part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks again for what you do. We love Farmer to Farmer podcast. It's nice to hear what's going on down in the lower 48. (laughs) Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 144 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Farragut. That's F-A-R-R-A-G-U-T. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farm to Farmer podcast right in your inbox just by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. 
And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.